Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer Margaret Atwood. Atwood is the author of over 50 books of poetry, critical essays, graphic novels, and fiction. Most notably, as you've probably read, Cat's Eye, The Blind Assassin, The Testaments, and of course, The Handmaid's Tale, which was published back in 1985. Her latest offering is called Burning Questions, a collection of essays, speeches, forewords, and other nonfiction pieces she produced from 2004 to 2021. The new book, which you absolutely should read, charts the changes in both her state of mind and the world around her, as The Handmaid's Tale, a futuristic, dystopian novel set in a totalitarian state, became increasingly relevant. Over the past two decades, Atwood has turned into our sort of preeminent doomsayer. A recent profile in The New Yorker called her the prophet of dystopia. Her fiction has imagined societies riddled with misogyny, oppression, and environmental havoc, they write. These visions now feel all too real. But while these descriptions are unnervingly accurate, I think they don't sufficiently capture Atwood's humanity. At age 82, she's as curious and vibrant as ever, 
passionate on the subjects of power, truth, the environment, and writing itself. She remains so even in the face of recently losing her partner of 46 years, the writer Graham Gibson. He passed away at the age of 85 back in 2019. You can feel his presence both in this conversation and on the page, in short pieces of fiction like Old Babes in the Wood, published in The New Yorker last year, or her poem Dearly, which you'll hear her read in this episode. Of course, there are many places to begin with Margaret Atwood, but after a short exchange about breakfast, it's here with Graham that we begin. I hope you enjoy. Okay, quickly, sound check, Miss Atwood. What did you have for breakfast today? You don't need to know that. (laughs) We tried out something new. We didn't put enough water in and we microwaved it and you could build a house out of that. Um, Yes, it was a new kind of sort of instant oat mixture. And my tip is add more water. Um, If it's any consolation, I've had no breakfast, if that makes you feel any better. Oh, no, it doesn't make me feel better. Did you have coffee? <laughs> There's some tea, just some tea. Coffee comes after this, but I'm, I'm going to be plenty cheery. Um, Margaret Atwood, nice to meet you. Pleasure to be here. How are you doing right now? Right now, I'm in a snow-covered wood, which yesterday had a lot of rain and froze solid. So we have ice covered with snow. And my immediate problem is how to get up an icy, snow-covered hill. But we've got that solved. Don't worry. (laughs) If I were in your situation, I would go tumbling down almost immediately. I know it. Well, then you would pick yourself back up and figure out how to get up the hill. (laughs) I have faith in you. (laughs) Well, you just met me, but I appreciate already having faith in me. In the introduction of your new book, Burning Questions, you write both personally and globally. I want to start with the passage here. In 2012, my partner, Graham Gibson, was diagnosed with dementia. What's the prognosis? He asked. It will go slowly. It will go quickly. It will stay the same. Or we don't know, he was told. It was much the same with the state of the world. It was a restless, unsettled period without any single overwhelming catastrophe. People were fearful, but their fear was unfocused. We were holding our breath. We were carrying on. We were pretending things were normal, but whiffs of a change for the worse were already in the air. Now that we've had an overwhelming catastrophe. Well, a couple of them, yeah, right. A couple of them. Who's counting? (laughs) Do you believe we've stopped pretending things are normal? Have we become more focused? We've become more focused, but you have to pretend things are normal to a certain extent just to get through daily life. So running and screaming in all directions isn't actually that helpful. I've divided the book into five periods, and that would have been second or so. So we'd had the big financial meltdown. We'd had 9-11 in 2012. We were recovering from the meltdown, the financial meltdown, but it did seem to be one of those eye of the hurricane, lull before the thunderstorm periods of time. So then came a lot of other stuff that we are now dealing with. 
There were unfocused inklings of it even then. What does that mean, unfocused inklings? (laughs) It means something's going on, but we don't exactly know what. I don't know whether you watch the weather a lot, but once upon a time, and I hate to break this to you, there was no internet. (laughs) You got the weather in, in other ways. You got it on the radio, but if you were in a place without radio or television, you watched the signs. How red is the sunset? How red is the sunrise? What direction is the wind coming from? And what is that I hear in the distance? I think you just made some breaking news here that there was life before the internet. Well, life, I mean, it depends how you define life. I mean, it was (laughs) proto-life. So why don't we go back to that time pre-internet? You recently tweeted, mythology is everything that happened before you were born when your parents were gods and heroes. Legend is your life until approximately age seven. History begins after that. Before we get into the history, let's investigate the legend here. You're born two months after World War II begins in November of 1939 in Ottawa, Canada. But you actually spend formative stretches of your life before seven in the wilderness, first in northern Quebec, and then north of Lake Superior. Here's how you describe it in your essay, Trees of Life, Trees of Death, from 2006. Mr. Father, <clears throat> Mr. Father, oh my Lord. Mr. Father, that's I, a good time. No. <laughs> Sir Dad. <laughs> you know, I'm immediately... <laughs> Lord Papa. <laughs> Lord Papa, my father. Um, I should have had that coffee. Okay. My father, Dr. Carl Atwood, was a research entomologist with what was then called the Department of Lands and Forests in the 1930s and the early 1940s. We'd be driving along the road during our numerous trips in the north, and suddenly we would pull over to the side. An infestation, we would cry. (laughs) Other families stopped for ice cream cones. Ours stopped for infestations. So we're talking about it, it was the war. So lots of things were rationed, and one of them was gasoline. So there weren't very many cars on those northern roads. He got to have some gasoline because of the infestations, but not enough gasoline to drive all the way to Nova Scotia to see the relatives, which was where they lived. So we didn't see the grandparents during the war much at all. So some gasoline infestations not many cars on the road. In fact, so many cars were not on the road that we frequently didn't even stay in anything like a motel. We just pitched a tent. So we didn't have nylon. We didn't have synthetic fabrics. This this would have been canvas, heavy. And as for the sleeping bags, they were filled with something that you've never heard of called K-Pok. Never heard of it. <laughs> Do you know what that is? You've never heard of it. I told you. <laughs> it was lumpy and soggy. My dad was an old bushy guy. He grew up in the backwoods of Nova Scotia and worked in lumber camp. So he was very good with an axe. And of course, you always had a gun of some kind. I hope you will not scream in horror because of the bears. You've heard of them. I've heard of those. (laughs) So there are a lot of things that we did then that you would not do now. We did our cooking on an open fireplace. That is basically what we did on the road trips. And and when we weren't on road trips, we were living in the woods. And my dad typically would build a a woodshed. First, we would live in tents. Then we would move into the woodshed while he built a larger house. 
In hearing that description, it seems like your parents were fairly egalitarian. What did that look like as a child? Well, they were not just fairly egalitarian. They were, I think for the time, very egalitarian. I had an older brother, and the big egalitarian field of battle would be cookies. So <laughs> everybody got one cookie. And as far as chores went, we both did chores. This whole enterprise, of course, was considered as a team effort, and everybody had to do something. One thing I didn't really learn until a bit later was stuff with axes, but I know it now. She says... <laughs> As a threat yes. on a podcast. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not threatening <laughs> you. I'm just informing you. Something else your parents did that I think I want to unpack is they never said to you, you can't do something because you're a girl. That approach to parenting was not common in that day and age. Who knows? I, I had no, no nothing to compare it with. Right. I expect it was not common, judging from what I've been told and, and what I had have read, because if you lived in a community, if you lived in a small town, if you lived in a city, you were going to have a social group, then there were going to be quite gendered things. Party dresses were a thing for birthday parties and it was before the age when Disney had got hold of the Grimm's fairy tales. So this prince, the outbreak of princesses that was shortly to come upon us in the 50s hadn't yet happened. <laughs> that vision of femininity, which existed through the 1950s, demanded women play a supporting role in the households. Here's a passage from the introduction of the book, The Equivalents. You write, they were to ditch their wartime Rosie the Riveter overalls and their independent incomes, act helpless and cute like Lucille Ball, and fulfill their femininity through having children, renouncing thought, and deferring to their husbands. Men who did not want to be type A hyperachievers were failed men, and women who did not want that were failed women. After graduating from the University of Toronto, you go to graduate school at Radcliffe in 1961, which seemed to be conceived in opposition to the rigidity of the 1950s, right? Let me situate you in, in time and space. Radcliffe Graduate School had not yet amalgamated with Harvard, which it did the next year. I got my AM from Radcliffe and then continued in the Harvard Graduate School program. It was the same program anyway. Okay, so, so why they were so keen on having people go through graduate school was the baby boom was about to hit. It hadn't hit yet, but it was coming. And in all areas of life, they were going to be understaffed, including education. So they were actively encouraging people to go to graduate school, get degrees, to be there for the expansion of universities, which they knew was going to happen. So they were actively encouraging that, but there were two narratives going on. One was, we really need you. Two was, well, we don't hire women in the English department at Harvard, so you're going to go off and you're going to teach in Pocatello, Idaho, but we still need you teaching. Not quite equal citizenship, because we're not going to hire you, but we need you. Figure that one out. You've heard it before many times in many areas of life. Typically, when it's a war or a revolution, woman power is called upon. We need you, help, help, roll bandages, be a nurse, drive a truck. And then when that's over, thank you very much, goodbye. 
I think one of my favorite examples is the squad of Russian female pilots in World War II who were nicknamed by the Germans the Night Witches. So if you look up Night Witches, you'll find this astonishing group of female pilots who were highly successful. They were given these cheesy little biplanes made out of plywood, as far as I can tell. But those could go under the radar, and they would swoop in at night and bomb things unseen, unexpected. And right after the war, they weren't even allowed to fly in the victory parade. I mean, it was frightful. Anyway, like that. Knowing the history of needing women but not hiring them, it seemed to me that in no way did that overwhelming history that you're describing, it didn't deter you from writing. No, why would it? (laughs) Teaching is not writing. So why was I even there so I could have a day job while I did the writing? To me, it was somewhat immaterial what kind of day job it was, but naturally I would want the day job that gave me the most free time to write. So I'd had various other kinds of day jobs I was going to go to France, live in a garret, drink absinthe. Unfortunately, I can't drink much. It makes me throw up, but never mind. And smoke cigarettes. I couldn't do gitan. I was going to smoke gitan. You know, those are very harsh French cigarettes. And I was going to work as a waitress and write my deathless masterpieces at night. But because people were so keen to get folks into graduate schools, I was given an offer I couldn't refuse. You stuck with the day job until... You had pieces published, and I want to go to 1969, where The Edible Woman is published. You have a story that you recount in Five Visits to the Word Horde about the first book signing you have. Oh, boy. (laughs) It was in a department store called the Hudson's Bag Company, and the publicist, I think it was her first week on the job, I think she probably figured it would be a good idea to have a table near the escalator with people going up and down. But I was there sitting at a table with this book called The Edible Woman in the men's sock and underwear department. Did I sell any books? Two. Did I frighten a lot of men? Yes. (laughs) They came on their lunch hour to pick up their socks or jockey shorts, took one look at this, and it being winter, they had their galoshes on. I could hear their galoshes <laughs> scuttling, running in the other direction. I think anytime you can scare men, you've succeeded in some way. I don't scare men who have a sense of humor. Come on, they're not that, that frightened of me. Unless they step out of line, then that's another story. Do you want to recount some of those? No. <laughs> Do you have a copy of your book with you? I do. Let's go to page 447. One year after that book signing incident, you meet Graham Gibson, who would later become your husband. In the foreword of his two novels, Perpetual Motion and Gentleman's Death, you describe that first meeting. Would you mind reading it? Yes. It's not the first meeting. It's the first time we sat down to talk. The first meeting was at a party that the writers had thrown for this poet called Milton Acorn, who was, as we now know, bipolar. We didn't know that at the time, but he was very depressed. He was actually a pretty good poet. He hadn't won the one literary award that you could win at that time. There was only one. Look how they proliferated. 
so we threw a party for him, and we we gave him a, an award that we had made up. So it was a cheer up Milton Acorn party, and it was 1969. Neither Graham nor I had won that award either. So I just said I thought his book was pretty good. And, of course, what would endear me more in his eyes? I certainly wasn't trying to start anything there. I was otherwise occupied, but that was the first meeting. The first time I sat down to talk with Graham Gibson in 1970, I read his hand, as I was in the habit of doing for strangers in those reckless days. Everything is connected to everything else, I said sagely. Your intellectual and creative selves are continuous with your lifeline and your fate line. It's all one. And so it was, and so it would be. Now, don't ask me to read your hand, because I wouldn't be able to see it clearly enough. But should we ever meet in person, I would be happy to do that for you. For the next time we do it, I I will ask. (laughs) You write in such vivid detail that first encounter... What does it make you think of that's not on the page? Oh, you want me to go back, back, back in time and have a weepy fit? I didn't say anything of the sort. No, of course you didn't. (laughs) That's what would happen. Graham said a very good thing to our daughter fairly late in his life. He said, if she hadn't met me, your mother would still have been a writer, but she wouldn't have had as much fun. That is entirely true. So we had a lot of fun of various kinds. Some of them were were involved with organizing things, and some of them were involved with going off rather dangerously (laughs) into remote locations. So that's true, but I wasn't thinking anything of the sort when I was reading his hand. What were you thinking? I was thinking, this is an interesting-looking hand. (laughs) You don't often get something like this. (laughs) I love that line from Graham. Margaret would still be a writer without me, but she wouldn't have had as much fun. She wouldn't have had as much fun, it's true. And part of that, because he was very, uh, he started these enthusiastic ventures, these projects. So we did live on a farm for 10 years. Because he was such an enthusiast, he would come back with yet a different kind of animal. So by the end, we had horses, we had cows, we had sheep, we had peacocks, we had chickens, we had ducks, we had geese, we had cats and dogs. So quite a menagerie. I'm a more reticent type of person. He would go, let's do, let's do this. And I would say, well, what about, you know, we have to consider, (laughs) just put the brakes on here and let's just think this through. But he was pretty tactical. So it was he who talked people into forming the writer's union and the in the 70s when everybody was saying, well, that that will never work because, you know, writers, they just fight all the time. They're filled with envy and they'll have writers' feuds. They'll never be able to agree on anything. That turned out to be dead wrong. And why were we even doing that? At that time, there were no agents in Canada to speak of. There was no way you could find out what was supposed to be in a contract. Nobody was doing entertainment law. It was just a bare-naked field. People were just believing whatever the publisher told them was standard. And, of course, you get them all together and they start comparing notes. He then um, organized the Writers' Trust, which is a going concern right now. And then we switched our focus to international situation of writers and got Canadian pen going. After pen, he then got heavily into conservation and 
uh, we were active in bird life international. I, by myself, would probably have not done those things. I'm not a natural joiner, and I'm not a natural activist. I end up doing those things because I don't have a job. So I get asked a lot. No, I'm serious. If you have a job, you can get fired. It's a, it's a consideration. And if, if you don't have a job, you actually can't get fired. You can get canceled, but you can't get fired. Have you been canceled yet? Oh, attempts have been made. <laughs> you have to ask about all of these things. The two questions that I bring up in Burning Questions, is it true? And is it fair? And you have to make a distinction between beliefs for which no evidence is, is required or indeed available, opinions, which we hope are based on the third thing, which is fact. Oftentimes, they're just based on belief. But having grown up with scientists, I'm pretty keen on fact. And that involves a lot of um, turning over the logs and going down the rabbit hole to see where this came from in the first place. Like, who started this rumor, whatever it may be? And where did it come from? And why are people getting sucked into it? And is it true? What people, I think, sometimes forget is that a lot of Handmaid's Tale, in fact, all of Handmaid's Tale, has a historical antecedent or a modern point of comparison. The book paints a dystopian vision in which the U.S. has become a fundamentalist theocracy and the remaining women whose fertility has not been compromised by pollution are forced into childbearing. Now, the book was published in 1985. It had plenty of points of modern comparison then. It had renewed interest throughout the Trump presidency for obvious reasons. But most recently, on January 2nd of this year, we marked the 40th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And as Gia Tolentino writes in The New Yorker, it is likely the last year that its protections will remain standing. I want to ask you two things. How are you thinking about the book, 37 Years Removed? But also, how are you thinking about this issue? Yeah, so people take rights and freedoms for granted. They really shouldn't because they're always under attack. But going back to, I based everything in it, like the practices and the propaganda, the dogma, if you like, on things that already did exist and were existing at the time I wrote the book. The reason I did that was that I knew that if I didn't do that, people would just say, you are an extremely weird person, how do you think of this weird shit? Which is, in fact, a question somebody posed to me on Twitter. How does Margaret Atwood think of this weird shit? To which I can say, I, it's not me thinking it up. <laughs> it's other people. You know, humanity does not get a free pass on its behavior over the past 10,000 years. In The Handmaid's Tale, it's not just people, women who have got fertility. It's women who have got fertility and have, quotes, committed adultery, i.e. got a divorce, because, of course, this is a very biblically-based regime, and there is no more divorce. If you've had a divorce or committed adultery, you're up for being a concubine, which is what these people are. But it's not just every woman. You can be an econo wife, for instance, sort of lower middle class, must do it all. And it's only the upper echelons who are entitled to concubines, as in so many societies of the past. The first question was about how did I make this stuff up? The answer, I didn't. What was the second? The second question was around Roe v. Wade and the possibility of it being overturned 
later this year. Uh, yes, it may be overturned at the federal level, and it will then be up to each individual state. And then we are going to have basically underground networks, which is what there was in Ireland when there was no possibility of having an abortion, even if your life was threatened. I think that got changed when a, a woman who was actually a doctor said, you know, this miscarriage is going really bad, it's going to go septic, I will die. And nobody did anything. And she died. So where are you going to draw the line? And it's always a line, back and forth, push and pull. You have some countries that have now liberalized that to a certain extent, namely Argentina, and other countries that are going the other direction, namely the United States, and then people have to live with the results. So how many dead mothers and unborn babies are we going to see? We do not know the answer to that. Are they going to try to outlaw birth control? Some states are even moving in that direction. So having grown up then, <laughs> no birth control, no pill, no abortion, you can pretty much chart the results. And the other interesting question is, if you really love babies, why aren't you taking better care of pregnant women? If you are making it impossible for people to decide whether they will have a baby or not, that is the state saying that it owns your body. So the state says it's owned your body under certain other circumstances, one of them being the draft. So you shall go into the army, no choice. But if you go into the army, the state is obligated to pay for your clothing, your food, your housing, your training, your medical care. So if the state is going to own women's bodies, they should pay for all of that. Because if they're making it so that you don't have a choice as to what your body is being used for, and that is a state decision, then all of those expenses should be covered, including postnatal care. I think that's fair. I think that's the bare minimum. But I'm curious because in your piece, A Slave State, which you're referencing here, you write, if one chooses to have a baby, that is, of course, a different matter. The baby is a gift given by life itself. But to be a gift, a thing must be freely given and freely received. A gift can also be rejected. A gift that cannot be rejected is not a gift, but a symptom of tyranny. Do you think we're moving closer and closer into that tyranny? We're moving closer and closer back to a point where the state claimed ownership of women's bodies. Why is that? I think there's a lot of anxiety in certain sections of the population so when, whenever you get that anxiety that there, that there aren't enough people, you usually see uh, restrictions on women. For instance, under Ceausescu in Romania, he decided there weren't enough Romanians. And he made it so, and it was the law that you had to have four children. <laughs> and you had to have pregnancy tests every month. And if you weren't pregnant, you had to somehow justify your lack of being pregnant, you know, as if it was your fault. It's very biblical. It's right back to Rachel, which I quote at the beginning of The Handmaid's Tale, give me children or else I die. And women were routinely blamed for if there weren't any children, it was, it was their fault. We'll be right back after a quick break. Mm-hmm. 
Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. (laughs) 
One of the byproducts of writing The Handmaid's Tale is that many people sort of asked you to be an activist or a writer as political agent. Where are you at on that these days? Well, I went into that in my, my book on writing, which was originally called um, Negotiating with the Dead, but the publishers, I think, got a bit spooked by the D word, changed the title to <laughs> A Writer on Writing. Not as fun. I didn't think so, but then again, I was born in November, so the astrological month of sex, death, and regeneration. So we're not too worried about the D word. Anyway, so I said, okay, here's how it's gone. Then I went into the art for art's sake movement of the 19th century. As I say, you got these alternating periods. So the 30s was heavily in favor of, of artists being political agents. The trouble with that is if you if you get a government in that's too interested in in the arts or indeed in the scientists, you get somebody like Stalin trying to control everything, tell people what kind of not only what kind of art they should have, but also what kind of science they should have. <laughs> so artists are always vacillating back and forth between these two things. Are you going to be a art for art's sake a purist, or are you going to be an activist artist, which risks you're producing a lot of agitprop and also being subject to the dictates of whatever movement or group you are supposed to be serving. So it goes all the way back to how do you buy the cheese sandwiches that you need to sustain your material being while you produce your no doubt excellent art? So who's paying for this? And there aren't a lot of choices. A patron, you know, patrons. Here's some money, make some art. You can inherit money, get born into money. You can hook up with the partner who's got money. So let's call that the having money option. You're giggling a lot. I'm enjoying your company. <laughs> I, I pray the feeling is mutual. Oh, it is. Yes, I, I, I love the opportunity to be a garrulous windbag. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's two. The third is get a day job, or you can go to the market, which is I will sell enough of my art to support myself. And those are the only options. So what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> more and more in the modern age, artists are being asked to make sure their work is adhering to some ideological. Yeah. So who's, in that case, calling the shots? Sometimes it's publishers who uh, wish to avoid controversy. Sometimes it's educational institutions, because more and more artists have got day jobs that involve teaching in educational institutions. A lot of what they are going to produce or not produce is going to have to do with the attitudes of whoever it is that they're going to go to to be the middleman or the day job. So if you don't have a day job, that's not a question. But if you don't have a day job, you do have to have a publisher. There are, however, now self-publishing options. There's quite a few of them. You can have a column on something called Substack. So the strictness of the gatekeepers is no longer so firmly in place as it once was. The Bible was censored because it had too much sex and violence in it, and a more maiden-friendly version was produced. 
So this has been going on for a long time. There's no religious swearing in Shakespeare because every play that he wrote had to go through a censor. The history of publishing and the history of censorship are strewn with these battles. This feels terribly reminiscent of a passage you have in three tarot cards from 2019. You say, this very moral view of literature, nothing should be published that would scandalize, was typical of the Victorian age. Do you think we're moving back towards that Victorian age? There's pluses and minus for everything. So in a democratic society, should anybody be allowed to say whatever they want, no matter how harmful to certain groups? So what are the limits on speech? And there always have been some. So we're not talking really about whether there should be no limits. We're talking about where those lines should be drawn. And this is going to go on for a while. In fact, it's probably going to go on forever until whatever mode that we're in goes too far and there's a reaction against it. And I think the real question we need to ask ourselves is, what kind of society do we want to live in? And do we want to live in a liberal democracy? And if we don't want to live in a liberal democracy, what do we want to live in? If an autocracy the autocrats get to say whatever they like, and other people don't get to say anything. Do you want that? No, you don't. If in an anarchy, everybody says everything, but since infrastructure has broken down, it's total chaos and nothing works. And if you want to see what that looks like, you can read a book called The Fall of Berlin by Anthony Beevor. Periods of total chaos produce warlords. Totalitarianisms produce samizdat. Things get said, but under the covers. So I'm old enough to have actually been behind the Iron Curtain when there was one. That was Berlin, 1984, right? Berlin, East Germany. Berlin was West Berlin. So that what that was that little spot of not Iron Curtain that was surrounded by it. So um, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, Checkpoint Charlie, all of that was going on. But I visited East Berlin, I visited Czechoslovakia, and I visited Poland, or I should say waited. And in that time, you were writing The Handmaid's Tale, am I right? Yes, yes, how interesting. How corny of me to have picked 1984. I wasn't going to fault you for it. (laughs) I I was going to give you a break. (laughs) You know, around that time, as you're operating and writing behind the Iron Curtain, your longtime literary agent... Phoebe Larmore visited you while writing The Handmaid's Tale. Here's what she said. I had become quite ill that year, and Margaret came and sat on my sofa, and I think she looked worse than I did. I asked her, what was going on? She said, it's the new novel. It scares me, but I have to write it. Does writing physically manifest still today as it did back then? Well... Yes, I'm not sure I looked worse than she did. <laughs> Those are her words, not mine. I know. I think she she may have thought that I looked anxious or something. Um, anytime you sit down in front of a blank sheet of paper, it's a risk situation. But writing, unlike a lot of other uh, arts, such as performance arts, you, you get a second chance. In fact, you get as many chances as there are drafts of your book. I think the anxiety moment comes closer to the moment of publication. 
I mean, it's not that you're not anxious while writing the book. The anxieties are having to do with, is this any good? Am I going to finish it? Is this just rubbish? Should I stop now? Those kinds of anxieties. And that has certainly happened to me. I've, I've started books and got quite far into them and had to conclude that they were rubbish. And I was going to throw them out. But that's a private anxiety. It's not something you're doing in full view in public. And yet, in full view in public, in the introduction of your new book, Burning Questions, you write, Looking back at my sporadic, badly kept, and not very informative journals, I note that one of my motifs is a constant moaning about taking on too much. It's true. <laughs> this has to stop, I find myself saying. There's a limit. This has to stop. Do you really believe there's a limit? Well, there's a limit to, to how many short pieces of journalism I can do in a year. And that limit is approximately 35. So let's let's just cut that back, I say to myself, um, and not do more than <laughs> 20. I mean, to put together this book of burning questions, we had to go through 18 years of 35 pieces a year. Do the math. I can't. Yeah, neither can I. I bring that up because I, I have to ask you, is there any part that considers not writing anymore? Oh, yes, I do that every day. <laughs> but then you think, well, okay, so, so I'm not going to write. What am I going to do instead? I think Mavis Gallant said, once you get into it, and once you've done it for a long time, the answer is not good for anything else. One of the pieces I found most moving comes towards the end of the book. It was born the third week of August 2017 on a back street of Stratford, Ontario, Canada. You were walking alone. You write, slow walking leads to rumination, which leads to poetry. Park benches are my friends, and it wasn't raining. Scribbling ensued. Can you read what that scribbling would eventually transform into? This is a poem called Dearly. It's an old word fading now. Dearly did I wish. Dearly did I long for. I loved him dearly. I make my way along the sidewalk mindfully because of my wrecked knees, about which I give less of a shit than you may imagine, since there are other things more important. Wait for it, you'll see. Bearing half a coffee in a paper cup with Dearly do I regret it, a plastic lid, trying to remember what words once meant. Dearly, how was it used? Dearly beloved, dearly beloved, we are gathered. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in this forgotten photo album I came across recently. Fading now, the sepias, the black and whites, the color prints, Everyone so much younger. The Polaroids. What is a Polaroid? asks the newborn. Newborn a decade ago. How to explain? You took the picture and then it came out the top. The top of what? It's that baffled look I see a lot. So hard to describe the smallest details of how all these dearly gathered together of how we used to live. We wrapped up garbage in newspaper tied with string. 
What is newspaper? You see what I mean. String, though, we still have string. It links things together. A string of pearls, that's what they would say. How to keep track of the days, each one shining, each one alone, each one then gone. I've kept some of them in a drawer on paper, those days fading now. Beads can be used for counting, as in rosaries, but I don't like stones around my neck. Along this street there are many flowers, fading now because it is August and dusty and heading into fall. Soon the chrysanthemums will bloom, flowers of the dead in France. Don't think this is morbid. It's just reality. So hard to describe the smallest details of flowers. This is the stamen, nothing to do with men. This is a pistol, nothing to do with guns. It's the smallest details that foil translators, and myself, too, trying to describe. See what I mean. You can wander away. You can get lost. Words can do that. Dearly beloved, gathered here together in this closed drawer, fading now, I miss you. I miss the missing, those who left earlier. I miss even those who are still here. I miss you all dearly. Dearly do I sorrow for you. Sorrow, that's another word you don't hear much anymore. I sorrow dearly. What do you think of reading that now? I'm glad my knees are better. How about that? <laughs> that answer you just gave, it strikes me as the cookie response in Old Babes in the Woods. That is absolutely the cookie response, and I'm really good at it. I can tell you're very good at it. There's another response, though. Well, the thing about poems is they're for the listener. They're not actually for the poet. You probably remember that quote from the movie The Postman, in which the postman filches some poems of Neruda's to woo his lady love, and he says the poems are not for the poet. Poems are for those who need them. And I think that's absolutely true. And the people who need them will find the ones that they need. I need other people's poems. That's how it goes. So, an exchange of poems. You write, uh, as for the why of poetry. Indeed, after the poem has passed out of the hands of the ones who's written it down, and after that person who may have departed from time and space and be wafting around as atoms, who else can a poem belong to? For whom does the bell toll? For you, dear reader. Who is the poem for? Also for you. Who else could it be? Well, as we leave, I, I have to thank you for the poem, yes, the books aplenty, all the words you've given that were not for you but were for us. And if it's not a terrible inconvenience, I am going to have to ask you for your advice on how to live, how to create, how to move with grace, all of which is captured in your opening essay of this book called Polonia. What advice would I give the young? None unless they ask for it. Or that's what would happen in an ideal world. 
In the world I actually inhabit, I break this virtuous rule daily, since at the slightest excuse I find myself blathering on about all kinds of things due to the mother-robin hormone I've already mentioned. Thus, as I'm sure you know, the most eco-friendly toilet is the Karoma. You can state your position and stick to your guns without being rude. Awnings cut down on summer heat through your windows by 70% or more. If you want to be a novelist, do back exercises daily. You'll need them later. Don't phone him, let him phone you. <laughs> That's a bit out of date. Uh, think globally, act locally. After having a baby, you lose your brain and some of your hair, but they both grow back. The stitch in time saves nine. There's a new kind of crampon you can strap onto your boots, handy on icy sidewalks. Don't stick a fork into a wall socket. If you don't clean the lint trap on the dryer, it may burst into flames. If the hair on your arm stands up in a thunderstorm, jump. It's very important. Don't step into a canoe when it's pulled up on the beach. Never let anyone pour you a drink in a bar. Sometimes the only way out is through. In the northern forest, hang your food from a tree some distance from your sleeping area and don't wear perfume. This above all to thine own self be true. Eyebrow tweezers are handy for getting big wads of glop out of bathroom sink drains. Every household should contain a wind-up flashlight. And don't forget about the little touch of vinegar for the meringues. That's the white vinegar, not the brown. However, here's the best piece of advice of all. Sometimes young people don't want advice from their elders. They don't wish you to turn into Polonia, not as such. They can do without the main body of the speech, the long checklist of instructions. But they welcome the part at the end, which is a kind of benediction. Farewell, my blessing season this in thee. They want you to see them off on their voyage, which is, after all, a voyage they have to make on their own. Maybe it will be a dangerous voyage. Maybe you'd be able to handle the danger better than they will, but you can't do it for them. You've got to stay behind, waving encouragingly, anxiously, a little plaintively. Farewell. Farewell but they do want the goodwill from you. They want the blessing. Margaret Atwood, I thank you for the blessing, the advice, the time, the words, and everything in between. <laughs> and farewell. Have a good life. <laughs> you too, Miss Atwood. You too. our show special thanks to heather fane todd dowdy and of course margaret atwood to purchase her latest book burning questions and to learn more about the works referenced in this talk visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com there you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes if you enjoyed this one and want to hear more like it i'd recommend our talks with Gloria Steinem, Naomi Klein, Malcolm Gladwell, Nikki Giovanni, George Saunders, 
Elizabeth Gilbert, Richard Powers, Jhumpa Lahiri, Anne Lamott, and Dave Eggers. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to send in an email or a voice memo for our upcoming mailbag episode, you can send that to mail at TalkEasyPod.com. That's mail at TalkEasyPod.com. We're looking for comments, reflections, any questions you have for us, anything you'd like to hear us discuss more, whatever you want to share about TalkEasy or whatever you want to learn more about. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at talkeasypod.com shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share this podcast with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate the program on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Reviewing the show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And... How are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.